I want to invite you right now to turn in your copy of the scriptures to Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at verses 18 through 25 of this gospel as it starts with really helping us to see the birth of Jesus Christ. A few weeks ago, Adam and I were talking about this series and going over who was going to preach what. And uh, we had the genealogy, the birth, and thinking about the praise that will come next week. And I was like, brother, you getting with the genealogy. How about that? The genealogy, you preaching genealogy. And then after last week, hearing how he so masterfully held, handled the genealogy to get us to see the grace of God, I was so pleased that I made that decision. Now let me stop. The Lord made that decision. Actually, he made that decision. I was just, uh, I'm just the messenger. All that being said, uh, I have an opportunity now to, to really highlight the, the birth of Christ and what he's done for us through that. Uh, this whole series is God of heaven is with us. God of heaven is with us. Been thinking about the God of heaven in the book of Daniel and how he is over all things. But at Christmas, we get a chance to really dwell upon the fact that God is with us. And we'll see that in HD fashion in this text as we look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. You know, last week, uh, as he preached through the genealogy, we saw that uh, the humanity of Jesus Christ. And really, we saw that through the lineage. And we walked away last week thoroughly convinced that Jesus Christ is the son of David. But this week, we're going to zero in on the fact that he is truly God. We're going to see the deity of Christ on display in a more prominent view with his birth. And we're going to walk away fully convinced that not only is Jesus Christ the son of David, but Jesus Christ is the son of God. He's the son of God, and that makes him fit to be the, the glorious Savior who brings salvation to those who believe. You know, and thinking about in Luke 2, the passage that was read this morning, it said, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to man in whom he is pleased. You know, there's been people in every generation that has been desperate for that peace, wanting the kingdom and wanting the peace to come along with it. Uh, Clinton E. Arnold, he's a Bible scholar and a historian, he discovered that in the Mediterranean world, there was a famous phrase, Pax Romana. It meant the peace of Rome. And the historian from Rome, Tacitus, he attributes this phrase uh, to the immense powers of Caesar Augustus. But even he, this historian, observed that Caesar never ushered true and lasting peace for all the subjects of Rome. He said many died and they still uh, were search of it, and they never found that peace. They wanted it, never saw it. He was never able to usher complete peace. Uh, but there is one who was born in Bethlehem that would usher in a type of peace that would transcend time. It's the king, and he came in the most unexpected way. That was miraculous in nature. It would cause us to not only have peace with God, but also we can have peace with one another because of what he offers through his salvation. Well, Matthew uh, is going to tell us about this King Jesus through his gospel account. And I would encourage you this way. Don't let your familiarity with this birth of Jesus Christ keep you from being amazed at this great salvation that God brings. We need to stand amazed. You know, sometimes it's, it's one thing to stand amazed, but we need to stay amazed. You know, you think about folks that when they first seen something, a great spectacle on this earth, they stood amazed, and then moments after that, they forgot about it because it became familiar to them. But we need to not only stand amazed when we think about this for the first time, but then we need to stay amazed that you've heard it again and again because it's a glorious salvation that God brings his people. Let me read this text in your hearing. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 reads as follows. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, 
Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity we have to open up the divine scriptures. I thank you, Lord, for speaking through your word. And I ask right now that you would grant grace to the preacher and help me to boldly declare all the truths that are before us. I pray for the hearts of all of those who will receive it. Lord, plant these truths deep into our thinking so that we may honor you and worship you. And I pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things from your law. And we ask this all in the blessed name of Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now, before we look at this text at hand, I want us to consider the first four books of the New Testament. Those are referred to as the Gospels. But all four Gospel accounts, uh, they, they were written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but they had a goal in mind. And as you think about Mark's Gospel, he He was thinking about Jesus as the suffering servant. Servant, 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 servant. But he suffered as he did it. And Luke's gospel, he thinks about Jesus as the son of man. Son of man came to do all of these things, to seek and to save that which is lost. And then John's gospel, he gives Jesus as the son of God. Makes no doubt in your mind that Jesus is deity. He's God. And then as we get in Matthew's gospel, he makes the point clear that Jesus is the sovereign king. He's the long-awaited for, the Messiah. He's the king, the king of the Jews. And at every juncture of his gospel message from beginning to end, he gives that impression that Jesus Christ came from the line of David. And he is the Messiah, the promised one who would come from the line of Abraham. The two gospel accounts that we normally refer to around Christmas time is is Luke and Matthew uh, because they give us the nativity. In Luke's uh, gospel account, he gives it from the perspective of Mary. Whereas what we'll see today in Matthew, he's going to give this from the perspective of Joseph. And even though you've got Mary and Joseph, those are the two actors, there is one who is the greatest actor on the scene, and that's Jesus Christ himself. The Lord of glory that's coming to do the work that no man could do. You know, people at this time, he was really writing this as an apologetic when he writes this gospel because he was defending the accusations that Jesus was some illegitimate son. That was what was floating around. And there were claims that, that Jesus was not really able to be the true king of Israel. They for sure weren't going to embrace him as God, true God. And so Matthew was writing this account. And even from the beginning, he obliterates these flaw, false claims that uh, really say that how true this God is and how he's bringing this salvation to mankind. And that's what we're going to focus on this morning. And the main point of today's message is this. While analyzing the birth of the Son of God... It should lead us to embracing the blessing of the salvation of God. We can't just focus on the manger filled with hate. we got to focus on the cross where Jesus Christ purchased our salvation because it's all connected. That's great salvation that we have. And so that's what we want to do is realize that the birth of Christ led to the salvation of man. And we're going to give God praise at each juncture. We're going to see this from three features of the birth of Christ that should help us embrace this glorious salvation of God. And the first feature is this. In verses 18 through 20, we're going to see the miracle of Christ's birth. It's a miracle that took place some 2,000 years ago. In order for an act to be a miracle, it has to have two components. It must be supernatural, which means that it defies the, the natural order in creation, and it must be a sign. Supernatural, it's got to be a sign pointing to something. You know, people say all the time, man, every time a baby is born, that's a miracle. Oh, it's a miracle. Where do bones come from? Where did all this happen? And while that's, you know, amazing act of God and creation, it isn't a miracle. That's, that's natural. That's something that God has done even in the beginning. 
allowed it that man and woman would come together and procreate and to bring about children. And then people said, what about this preacher, man? What about having eight kids? Now, that's a miracle. Uh, you know, eight babies at once, that is a big thing, but it's not a miracle. It's extraordinary. You know, would hope that uh, that would happen to somebody else. We already got a full family going on here. Don't need no more masses running around. But at the end of the day, it's not a miracle. It's not a miracle. That's a regular birth that just happened in an extraordinary fashion. But this, what we're about to observe, this is a miracle where God is doing the work and bringing the second person of the Trinity into time and space. And it says in verse 18, we're going to look at this miracle as it's considered through the pregnancy of Mary. Here in verse 18, it says, now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. That term birth, it's the term Genesis. It could be a wide range from creation and all the way to begotten. And some of the skeptics, they like to, uh, to talk and falsely acclaim that, aha, this is our, our verse. You see, it says right here in the, your own scriptures that Jesus was a created being. But really that term, it meant begotten. And even as, as the term is transliterated, it's Genesis. And I find it interesting that uh, the first book of the New Testament takes us back to really the, the first book of the Old Testament in your thinking. It's almost as if Matthew is wanting us to recall that that same one who, who created life is the same one that can create life in that little womb, even without man. He did it in the beginning without man. He can do it now. And, and Matthew is focusing our attention on the fact that this is some amazing miracle that's about to take place. You know, the fact that Jesus Christ was, he had a true birth, it, helped, it places Jesus in human history. And therefore, it's, it's, it's not like those Greek mythology. It's opposed to any of that. This actually took place in a moment in time that Jesus was born. And it says Jesus Christ. Christ was not Jesus' last name. His earthly name is Jesus. But Christ is his ministerial office. It tells what his role is and who he is. His name was given to Christ, and it means Messiah, the, the anointed one, the one that Israel was long awaited. They were waiting for this. All of God's people were waiting for the anointed one. And he said, here it is. It's the birth of Jesus, this anointed one, and it happened as follows. And he goes on to say, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting that in the genealogy that we saw, you you know, somebody has begotten somebody, and somebody else has begotten somebody, and begotten, and begotten, and begotten, gotten, gotten, and he's begotten, somebody has begotten. But in this case, we don't see that somebody begot somebody. We say that his mother Mary was with child who was betrothed to Joseph. Total change up. The reason why we don't see that somebody begot somebody is that God begot this child. He was God's begotten child, and that's why he's the father's only begotten son. God was doing extraordinary, amazing, supernatural things in this birth of Jesus. And it said he did it while Mary was betrothed to Joseph. You know, we think of betrothal as an engagement period. But in this culture, betrothal was more legally binding than, than marriage. It was really on the same plane. And even as verse 19, we see that where it says her husband, Joseph. It even showed how binding this is. You know, their marriage, it, it took place in the ancient Near East in three phases. And particularly in the Jewish culture, the betrothal was the first stage of marriage. This is where the parents of a young man chose a young woman to be engaged to their son. And then they would have, uh, you know, been probably about 12 or 13 years of age. It shows you the age of Mary and Joseph would have probably been around that age. And then the second stage of this marriage is the official arrangements and a prenuptial agreement. And they would do that before witnesses which could be broken only by death or divorce because it was legally binding. And then during this time frame, there wasn't uh, sexual relations. They weren't tolerated in the culture. It just didn't happen in the betrothal period. It usually would take about a year uh, that the husband would go and, and uh, build a house and come back, and, and then that would lead to the third and final stage, and that was the wedding. You know, in between that, the husband, the bridegroom, he would go and, and build a house, and then he would get in his garb when it was time with his groomsmen. And then they would go to the house of the bride and she would be there in her, her, her glorious gown and, and she would be there with the bridesmaid. And then they would have a procession that would go back to the house that he had built and a place that he had prepared for his bride. And then they would have a, a wedding supper. They would feast and then they would consummate the marriage. 
But Joseph and Mary didn't have that. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit there in verse 18. You see, Matthew, uh, his account, he gives it really just as a matter of fact. He didn't gloss over it. He didn't make it seem like, oh, he just said she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. But Luke gives a little bit more detail. In Luke 1.35, he says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God because it's the work of God, not man. Man didn't have influence in Jesus coming into this earth. God did. That's amazing that the Holy Spirit would overshadow her. The same Holy Spirit that, that hovered over the formless darkness of the void of this earth or before creation. The same Holy Spirit is the one that did that in general creation. Is the same Holy Spirit that hovered over the dark womb of Mary. Isn't that amazing? He did this work so that he would bring about our Savior. But all of a sudden, you know, you got to put yourself now in, in the, the, the sandals of Joseph for a second. You know, he's prepared this house. He's probably a, more likely a carpenter. He would have done great work. And this house is probably pristine. He's like, I got something good for you. And then he comes back. He's engaged. He's got all this formality going, and he's at hard work, but he finds out that Mary's pregnant. Can you imagine what happened? He knew that he was a righteous man, and he hadn't known her and hadn't been with her physically. So the only logical explanation is that Mary had been unfaithful. That's something that, that he probably was thinking. It's the only thing that he could come up with. You see, Joseph didn't get the last half of that explanation in verse 18. He didn't get that last prepositional phrase that said, by the Holy Spirit. He just knew that he got the first part that said, she was found to be with child. And he knew that he had not been with her. And so you think about this puzzling situation. You know, the pregnancy of Mary presented a problem for Joseph. But in verse 19, it says, Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. Matthew gives us two elements of Joseph's character. One, it says that being a righteous man, this righteous man, it meant that he was a lawful man that stood up and upheld those standards of the Mosaic law. So he did things God's way. And all the oral traditions of his day, he obeyed them because he feared God. It didn't mean that he was sinless. But it meant that he obeyed God out of a right heart, a righteous man. And you can see that even in Job. It was called of him blameless, right? And Job 1.1, he was righteous and blameless, upholding God's law. So we know that Joseph is a righteous man. And also we get that he's not wanting to disgrace her. He didn't want to put her to shame publicly. And so Joseph had two options at this point. He could have taken Mary to the court and caused a widespread disgrace for her being an adulteress. And making her liable to even be stoned to death, according to Deuteronomy 22. That's what you did with someone who was unfaithful in the betrothal period. You just you stoned them to death. You killed them to put away immorality among God's people. But the second option he had was he could have a, the law made an allowance for a man to draw up a private certificate of divorce. As long as he had two to three witnesses, he could do so. And then Deuteronomy 24 made that allowance. And Joseph, he clearly chooses the second option. Because it said that he planned to send her away secretly. He didn't want her to deal with the gossip and the slander and the shame. People of the town saying, girl, if you heard about Mary, he wanted her to get away of all of that and send her away so that she can go out and not have to, to deal with all the drama. This was not only a miracle considered. You think about this. Joseph, how he handles Mary. He handles her with such love and forgiveness and, and forbearance and grace. Here it is. He's in, she, she's in the wrong, according to him. He doesn't know that this is God's doing. He sees her as having violated the contract, the covenant that they made with one another. And how does he deal with her? He's going to be shamed in this process, but he doesn't deal with her in the same way. He says, I'm going to, I'm going to be graceful with her. Send her away secretly. That's a lesson that we can learn from Joseph. How are you among those who have dishonored you? Those who have offended you. And you can go to book, chapter, and verse and before God and say, look, this person has sinned against me. But do you handle them with such forbearance and grace and gentleness? Not to act like it didn't happen, but to deal with it in a graceful fashion. 
We can learn a lesson, even like I said, from Joseph in this whole uh, moment. I believe that you might have a loved one or someone that you have a relationship now that you need to be thinking, how can I show grace even though I've been wronged? It's hard for us to do, but God allowed this to take place even as he was bringing about this miracle. Well, this miracle was considered, and now it was confirmed. Look at verse 20. When he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You see, he was considering this, and Matthew puts the word behold. It's a signpost. Whenever God uses this word in Scripture, it says, look up, something amazing is about to happen. This is a truth that you need to hear. This is something that needs to be punctuated in your thinking. And this is a signpost. He gave the supernatural work of the virgin birth or conception. And then he also has the signpost that's giving the meaning. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. You know, sometimes in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord was God himself. And, and many of those appearances were physical. But this one... He comes in, it seems that it's a created angelic being, and he came in the form of a dream. You know, that word dream is, is only used six times in the New Testament. And all six of them come in Matthew, and they refer to Jesus. So really, God is making it clear through the scriptures that, that dreams are not means of the norm for communication to his people. Really, it's, it's something that he was doing in an amazing fashion with Jesus alone. So none of us have the excuse that we can say, God spoke to me last night in a dream. If he does, I'm going to be like, okay, which book, chapter, and verse did he say it in? Which verse came to mind? Because this is the completed canon is the way that God speaks to us. Amen? He doesn't need dreams. He's got all the, the 66 books of divine revelation. But he's doing something unique here, and he gets Joseph's attention, and he comes while he's in his sleep. And he says, Joseph, son of David. Now, you can stop right there. I see, I know that my name is Curtis. And you know that my name is Curtis. Uh, but, you know, I may or may not pick up on it when you call me by Curtis. But let me be doing something and I hear Curtis Dwayne Massey. When I hear my full name, it don't matter what I'm doing at that moment. It ceases to be important because I got all ears when I hear Curtis Dwayne Massey. And typically, that name is only going to come from one or two people either my mama or my wife. And, and a lot of times, it's usually when I'm in trouble. Amen? Got some husbands that can sympathize with that. But when you hear that full name, it gets your attention. And obviously, this isn't the full name of Joseph, but God is getting his attention when he says, Joseph, son of David, because he's helping him to see that you're part of that royal line. He's helping him to recall the promises of God, the promised Messiah, the promised one that is going to come as a son of David to sit on the throne with rule with a rod of iron. That's the one. And so as he, his ears perks up in this dream, and then he says to him, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived is of the Holy Spirit. Not the tales of the pagan gods, the mythological ones that say that, you know, they come up with these stories uh, to try to distract us and say, ah, oh, you know, it's been happening for centuries that a god would, would have, you know, relations with a human and have a demigod. But that's not what Jesus is. Jesus isn't a demigod. This is God, true God, that came in the form of a virgin. This is what God was up to in this. This is this great miracle that he has. And the reason that we know that, that this is not the case is because it says this child would be conceived of the Holy Spirit. The virgin would be conceived. Who would have thought that? Israel, the people, they were looking for this Messiah that would come, but never in their wildest imagination would they have thought that it would be God, true God, coming in the form of man. But this is what God was doing. But Matthew goes through all of this to help us to understand two things about Jesus. One, Jesus was fully human. He's fully human. Jesus was human physically. You think about it, Jesus had to be in the fetal position for nine months. He would come out and have to be, to be cared for. The author of life had to be submitted to the process of giving life. Isn't that amazing? That's Jesus Christ. He's in like ate like a normal human being. He grew tired like all of us. Jesus was a human physically. He was a human intellectually. He even had to learn knowledge on this earth. The one who is the word had to learn about the word. Luke 2.52 says that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. 
He had to grow up like a kid and understand wisdom and learn it and read it for himself. He was a human emotionally. You think about even in uh, there with Lazarus, one of the shortest verses in the Bible, John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus what? Wept. He had emotions of a human. This is our God that has done this miracle because our salvation meant that much to him. He said, I'm going to go through great lengths to make this happen. And why is it so important for us to understand that Jesus was fully human? I mean, what's the big deal about that? Well, I like what the writer of Hebrews puts when he says in Hebrews 4.15, it's such that he could sympathize with our weaknesses. Amen? We've got a a human high priest, a a glorious God-man high priest that can sympathize with our weaknesses. There's no sin that you can do that Jesus cannot understand because he himself was tempted at all points, but yet he was without sin. Nothing that we can be confronted with in this life that Jesus is going to be unfamiliar with. We can't say, Lord, you can't help me here. You don't understand this physical weakness that I'm going through. Jesus Christ knows, brothers and sisters. There's nothing you can say, oh, this emotional distress that I have. Jesus Christ is keenly aware of those. There's nothing that you can say about, oh, this this circumstance I'm in. Jesus Christ knows. And Jesus Christ cares. We have a God who became human for us. I pray that as we think about this, it should help us to understand that Jesus Christ knows all of our needs. He didn't just create us. He understands us. And he became like us. That's the humanity of our glorious Jesus Christ. Not only is Jesus fully human, Matthew is helping us to know that Jesus, he's fully God. And it says he's of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. That phrase is mentioned twice in three verses to help us to understand that that he's fully God. Joseph was the earthly father, but he was not responsible for the conception of Mary, which would lead to the birth of Jesus Christ. You know, people talk about, oh, it was a supernatural birth. No, it it was a natural birth, but it was a supernatural conception. And that's what makes Christmas amazing. No other person, no other human could do what God did and allowing the God-man to come. You think about this child, the moment he was born, he would have been instantly older than his mother and his father because this is the ancient of days coming down for us, brothers and sisters, because we needed this salvation. 100% God, 100% man. Even it's like the disciples said in Matthew 8, 27, when they were out there and the wind and the sea was, was tossing and turning, and when Jesus said, peace be still, They looked at him and said, what kind of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The answer to that is that it's the God man. It's fully man, fully God, 100%. It's amazing that Jesus Christ wore that intention, held that in tight tension. And he did that because he was convinced that we needed a savior. You know, you think about Jesus had power and command over creation, power over diseases and demons. You know, he had even the authority of death, raised Lazarus. All of these things happen because he's God, true God. But why is it so important for us to fully understand that Jesus is God? Well, we needed a Savior. If it was just man, he could have probably lived and done some good things and taught us a good thing about life and righteousness, but he couldn't purchase the salvation. He needed to be God in order to purchase the wrath that you and I deserve. And because he's eternal, he could take an eternal wrath and absorb it all. Amen? That's why he had to be 100% human, to live the perfect life. And 100% God to absorb the wrath that we deserve. That's the miracle of miracles when it comes to the virgin birth or the virgin conception that led to the birth of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is, uh, MacArthur writes this about the incarnation. He says, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is a central fact of Christianity. The whole superstructure of Christian theology is built on it. The essence and the power of the gospel is that God became man, and that being holy God and holy man, he was able to reconcile man to God. Isn't that the glorious truth of the gospel? That's what we have in this miracle. It's not just a cute story of a baby. 
And so ultimately that that babe would be up on a rugged Roman cross one day purchasing the salvation for all those who would believe. And that's the great miracle that we celebrate in the birth of Jesus Christ. Well, that was the first feature that we see, is that the birth of Christ should cause us to embrace this glorious salvation that we have in God. The second feature is this, that we should see the meaning of Christ's birth. Let's make sure that we pick up on the meaning of Christ's birth, and we see that in verse 21. The meaning of Christ's birth is that he was bringing salvation to men. It's that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. You see, assigning names is such a great privilege of of parents. It's something you delight in doing. And it can take you a whole nine months to do it. I think that's why God gave nine months to figure out, okay, what are we going to name this child? You know? And some of y'all, it probably should have took a little longer. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. We got some crazy names coming out there nowadays. But um, all that being said, I wanted to look back and think about the the names in the the greatest year, you know, 1977. That was a year yours truly was born. So I think that's a great year. I just thought about it, looking at I see some witnesses out there. Hey, man. Hey, man. I see another. Yeah, I got another. Testify. You testify. 1977. We age with grace, don't we? Um, but I was looking to see the names of those, the most popular names in 1977. And the girl name, you know what that was? Most popular name for a girl? It's Jennifer. It's like, wow, I was trying to figure out who, Jennifer, what, what, what gave that influence? But you know what the one for the boy is in 1977? Michael. Michael. And I don't even want to say the person that I think influenced that name uh, in, the, in the 70s, because if not, I might bust out dancing on stage, and we wouldn't want to derail the sermon uh, for all of that. Uh, but that was in 1977, Jennifer and Michael. Those are the two names. Curtis didn't make the list. I don't know why. I don't know why. It was a great year, great name. Uh, but parents take joy in naming their children. But you know what? When God is doing something amazing in his redemptive history, he doesn't let the parent name the child. God names the child. And we see that, that God is naming this child Jesus because God is going to do an amazing thing to save his people from their sins. And we saw this in the Bible. Ishmael, he was named. He came to Hagar the, uh, there in Genesis 16, 11. And it says, you shall have a son and name him Ishmael. Isaac, same thing. Sarah, you'll have a son and name him Isaac. And God will establish an everlasting covenant with his seed after him. Solomon, you see that. Josiah. All of these great names, God was doing something in his redemptive plan. Cyrus, even John the Baptist. John wasn't in the name of the family, but he was going to be named John because he was going to do an amazing thing to be a forerunner for Jesus. And now we get Jesus. And he says, really, the the name here is Jehovah saves. means God saves. Every time you would have heard Jesus, you were reminded that, that God saves. Israel was waiting for these promises. Year after year after year, not seeing what they thought they would see. Every time they would hear this name, they would be reminded that God saves. At this point, you know, this is where humanity and the deity is where we differ with Jews and Muslims and even Jehovah's Witnesses and many others that disagree with Christianity because they absolutely refuse to accept the fact that it's Jesus and it's God. And this is where we have to to understand that Jesus, yes, he came to, to heal the sick, Feed the hungry, bless the poor, and do all of these amazing things. But the most important work is in this single statement that we see in 21, and that is, he will save his people from their sins. That's his greatest work. His greatest work. It's very popular, even amongst the, the Jewish culture, that their expectation of the Messiah would be to save them from Roman oppression. They would have thought, man, Jesus is going to get us out of this, this persecution that we're under. But they didn't realize that their greatest problem was sin. Greatest problem was sin. And that's the same thing today. You ask many people, man, what is your greatest problem? Why do you need Jesus? And they'll give you tons of wrong answers. They believe that he needs to save us from the threat of destruction. Now, you see what's happened over there in Europe? It can come to us. We need a Savior that can keep us from destruction. Or maybe they say, I need, you know, a Savior that can help me from a difficult relationship I'm in. I need somebody to snatch me out of that thing. I need a Savior. Might be, need to be saved from financial distress. Times are hard. Inflation. I need financial help and salvation. Or somebody might say, oh, I just need help from fear and anxiety and stress. Those are good things to be helped in, but that's not the ultimate need of salvation. The ultimate need is found in the statement, and that's sin. And we have to understand it. Those are all wrong terms. Thinking about persecution and destruction and relationships. 
And if you think about sin in the wrong view, you'll have a faulty view of what you need for a Savior. And we have to understand that money, opportunities, political decisions, and resources, they can all be many saviors, but they can't be the Savior, Jesus Christ. They can help us in some circumstances, but they can't help us who can help us in all circumstances, and that is Jesus Christ who redeems us from our sin. We have to have a great understanding of sin, brothers and sisters, so that we can appreciate the enormous degree of the salvation. You see, sin is defined as missing the mark of God's perfect righteous standard. It means that anything from ignorance from that righteous standard to wandering or straying from that righteous standard or defiant, rebellious and disregard of God and that standard that he has, willful disobedience. And that whole spectrum, that's sin. And we have that bound up in our hearts, even as a child. Augustine asserted this. He said, pride is at the heart of all sin because it is the motive that man has to attempt to live his life in the power of self. He says, you rise yourself above God. You see, sin causes man to assume the role of God and to assert autonomy for himself apart from the creator. So every sin does, puts us above God. It affects sin at the moment of birth, corrupts our relationship with God, corrupts our relationship with other people, and even brings us to death because the wage of one sin is eternal death and condemnation. But there's good news about that. There's good news. And even John the Baptist said it in John 1.29 when he said, Behold the Lamb of God! who takes away the sins of the world. That's the news of Christmas, is that we have an opportunity to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The long-awaited Messiah has come, and he's going to save Israel, not just from the bondage of the surrounding nations, but he's going to save them so that they can have an authentic relationship with God, dealing with their sin dealing with their relationship that had been broken and now can be restored through the gospel. And that really is the meaning of Christmas. That's the meaning of the birth, is that Jesus Christ saves us from our sin. Not our circumstances, our sin. And even though he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21. That's the true meaning of Christmas. Jesus Christ lived perfectly and offer that up and if we believed in him that's the greatest exchange is that we get all of his righteousness and he gets all of our wrath but he did that as he was born so that he would live to ultimately die that's the glorious savior and that's the meaning of christmas you see we can't reduce christmas to god's son laying gurgling in the manger and forget that he hung in agony on that cross you see there's there's no sin unforgivable that you can understand that if God would go through these great lengths to come, to die for you, there's no sin that you can have that's unforgivable in this economy. Some of you might think to yourself, I'm far off. There's no way that God could save a person like me. Well, if God could do an amazing thing like this, God could save someone like you. Come to Jesus Christ today. Come to him. Realize that this amazing Savior has his arms open wide. If he's done that greatest work of salvation, he can do it for you. He can do it for you. And for those of you that can appreciate that, realize that you once were a sinner and now you're a saint, it's not because of what you've done, but it's because of what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. That's the meaning of Christmas. That's why we praise him for that. You know, one of my favorite Christmas hymns is, Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinner reconcile. That's the meaning of Christmas, brothers and sisters. That ought to be on our hearts and it ought to be on our tongues when we talk to people about this glorious Jesus Christ that has been born to a virgin. I just hope that as you're going through this Christmas that you're not making all kinds of plans to, uh, to get a bunch of gifts, to have a bunch of holiday parties, and miss out on the real meaning. And that's Jesus Christ has purchased salvation by allowing us to be forgiven of our sins. 
That's the meaning of Christmas. Let's do that. I would encourage you, even as you approach Christmas this year, even some of you have been reading the Luke devotional all the way up to the time of Christmas, have some aspect that you can have renewed in your thinking that will help you amplify and appreciate the birth of Jesus Christ that resulted in salvation. Well, we've seen two features in this text. One, we've seen the miracle of the birth of Christ, and then we've seen the meaning of the birth of Christ. The last, we'll look at the third feature, which is the message of the birth of Jesus Christ. The message. You know, this message that Jesus Christ's birth was prophesied in verses 22 through 23. It says, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Matthew uses the phrase to fulfill what was spoken multiple times in his gospel account to show us that when God makes a promise, he stands behind it. There's never been a promise that God has made that he hasn't kept. All of those prophecies in the Old Testament, they came to pass. God is 100% accurate on them all. Either they have happened or they will happen. But God is amazing. He stands behind his promises. I can remember growing up in church as a little boy and my grandfather was a Southern Baptist preacher. And when he would preach about the promises of God, he said, when God makes a promise, you can put your weight on it. And I was a little guy at the time, probably in third grade, still weighed about 30 pounds. And I couldn't even understand what he meant by that. You can put your weight on it. But what he was really saying was you can put the totality of your confidence and your assurance that when God makes a promise, by all means, he is going to keep it. He's going to keep his word. That should encourage each and every heart. There's somebody here who needs to hear that God has made promises and he will not fail on any of them. That's the truth right now that you might be struggling to, to say, man, Lord, are you really going to cash in on this one? The answer is yes, because God keeps his promises. That's the amazing Christ that we have is telling people from all time and eternity that God keeps his promises. What was fulfilled there, even in Genesis, uh, prophesied in Genesis 3.15, when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. They were looking for that one that was going to bruise the serpent on the head and give him a final death blow. Even Adam and Eve were looking for Cain. Wow, they had Cain, and they was like, no Messiah. They had Abel, no Messiah. They had Noah, Noah, Messiah. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, no Messiah. David, Solomon, no Messiah. But when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, finally they get their Messiah who has come to save them from their sins. And even there in verse 23, it says, Behold this virgin. She'll bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That really is the message of Christmas. God is with us. He fulfilled this prophecy there in Isaiah 7, 14 that was given to King Ahaz who needed a sign to show that God would, would preserve his people. He says that there will be a virgin. There will be a child that will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Back in Isaiah, centuries before this, this is what God was doing, and he ultimately brought it to pass and he said this in a single statement, God is with us. God is with us. Brothers and sisters, in Christmas time, do you realize that helps us to celebrate the fact that God is with us through the person of Jesus Christ? He's with us. It's like what John says in John 1:14, that the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we saw his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is with us. I was at lunch the day or early this week, and and I uh, was talking with a brother, and we had lunch just sharing about what God is doing and renewing the Christmas story and, and our thinking. And he recalled a sermon that he had heard where a preacher had talked about not only did God come down out of the heavens, God came all the way down. He didn't come to be in a king's palace. He didn't come to a wealthy family. He came in a lowly manger in the backwoods of Nazareth to show the degree of humility that he would exhibit, all because he wanted to purchase your salvation. We should praise him for that. It's a glorious God that would come all the way down. You know, I think about, you know, Jesus Christ, 
He was the one who, who, who ended up studying and grew weary and tired. The eternal one entered into time. The bread of life was the very one who needed to eat. The fountain of living water grew thirsty. This is the Jesus that we need to stop and give praise to for what he's done. Yeah, I think about some of the mission trips that I've gone on. I love going on mission trips because I believe that there's people out there uh, in various cultures that have such a high degree of depravity and destitution that they need a faithful gospel witness. But there are some places that I look on, the, on the, the radar of the map and I'm like, oh my goodness, I don't know if I can go there because of what's going on. There may be persecution, attack, maybe issues that will take place. And I said, man, I don't know. I can go all of these places, but I can't go to that location on the mission trip. But praise his holy name that in the heavens, Jesus Christ didn't say, I can go to a bunch of different places, but I'm not going there on that mission trip. He was moved with compassion, mercy, and love. And he came to the heart of darkness because he wanted to offer salvation. We should bless his holy name this Christmas and praise him for that great mission trip that he did on our behalf. I like how Sinclair Ferguson writes as he thinks about this humility of Christ coming down for us. He said, he is God with us in the manger so that he can be God for us on the cross, so that he could be God with us after his death, burial, and his resurrection. God with us so that he could be God for us, so that after the resurrection, he can be God with us from this time forward throughout eternity. Praise his holy name for that. God is the one. He is the one that is worthy to receive praise. And that's the message this Christmas. I find it interesting in verse 24, we look at Joseph. After all of this, it said he awoke from his sleep and the angel Lord commanded him, said he took Mary as his wife. You know, Matthew writes this for the readers to realize that Joseph obeyed God immediately and completely. He did it. You know, he didn't get up and say, oh, wait, wait a minute. Let me go to sleep again. And if I get another angel, then I really know that this child is from God. He didn't put a fleece out and give God a second chance to communicate that message. He didn't even give stipulations on his obedience and say, all right, Lord, if you prepare me a house somewhere where nobody's going to talk about me like the you know, community, then I'll take you up on that command. What did he do? He obeyed immediately and completely. You know, we have this phrase, even in our house when we are kids, you know, we talk to them, we say, hey, look, you obey right away without delay all the way. Do it completely. And that's what we should do when we're obeying God's commands because delayed obedience is really disobedience. But we see here even Joseph said, I'm going to obey immediately and completely. You need to ask yourself the question, do you obey God this way? Do you obey him immediately when you're convicted by the scriptures? And do you obey him completely, doing all that he said? Or do you do it halfway or a portion of it? We can learn a lesson from Joseph in a lot of ways. Again, Matthew writes this from his perspective, and we can see what God would have us to say on that. But ultimately, I pray that, that we would understand, and as we think about Joseph, he would make a decision that would ultimately change his life. You know, people would have been sure enough whispering around him. But he went through all of that shame because he believed this message of Jesus Christ would be born as a savior for mankind. That should be a lesson for us. Have you believed this message? Have you believed the message? And not only that, in verse 25, it said that he kept her a virgin even until she gave birth to the son. And he called his name Jesus, just like he was commanded. He wasn't commanded to keep, uh, you know, without relations with Mary. But he did that because he wanted to honor this. This is fascinating that God would use the sovereignty of God and he coupled that with the responsibility of man. We'll never be able to figure that out. But God, he always makes the first move in salvation. But even though he makes the first move, it's never the only move. He uses human responsibility in that. God does his part and he's expecting us to do our part. And that's to believe and obey. And that's the message of Christmas, that Jesus Christ was born to a virgin. His substitutionary atoning death allowed the burial and resurrection and ascension and ultimately return so that he might bring us to that full glorification. That's the Christmas story. 
And Joseph did his part in believing that message, and I pray that we would do the same. I pray that if you're here, you've heard this gospel hundreds of times, but that today you would say this will be the day that I'm truly going to believe. And if you have received that message, share it with others. A few weeks ago, I got a chance to go to a store, and one of the ladies at the checkout, she said, oh, Merry Christmas. I said, Merry Christmas to you. And I said, this is amazing that we get a chance to have opportunities to talk about how amazing Christ is and his birth that brings salvation to man. You know what she said? She said, you know what? I've heard hundreds of customers come through here and say Merry Christmas, but I've not heard a single one talk about Jesus Christ. I said, well, this is the first time that you've heard that, but don't let it be the last. Come in here and, and receive the message of salvation that God brings through this glorious birth. And she said she'd think about going to church after that conversation, but that's the way that we should go about sharing this message that we have of this birth. This meaning, the miracle, and the message are all reasons for us to give God praise. A few things for us to think about as we leave this morning. You think about the Christmas story, let's stay amazed. Let's stay amazed. We talked about being standing in amazement. Let's stay amazed. Don't let your familiarity of the Christmas story keep you from standing in awe and being captivated by this glorious salvation that God brings. And let's stay grateful. Stay grateful. Always having a heart of gratitude for the salvation that God has allowed his son to come down for us. And then let's share the gospel. Share the gospel. Find ways to share that gospel message this Christmas. You know, it's interesting. Joseph never got the opportunity to go to Mary and have that processional to receive his bride to himself with the place that he went to prepare for her. But there is one bridegroom that has gone to prepare a place for us. And there is going to be one day where there is going to be a procession from the heavens where that bridegroom is going to come. And he's going to receive all of those that have ever believed in his name. And there's going to be a glorious wedding feast that's going to take place with the Lamb of God. But it's only if you have believed. I pray that you have believed in this Jesus Christ and received the greatest gift on Christmas. And that's salvation for your sins. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for this glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this message of hope that allows us to know that we have a Savior. I pray, Lord, that every person that has heard this truth would be amazed by it or either saved by it. And I ask that you would open the eyes of those who have been in darkness and help them to see this great light that has come to man. And for those of us that have, Lord, may we share it with all those in our presence. We love you and we praise you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.